What are the biggest differences between PR in the US and the UK? I mean, you know, first and foremost, the pay. <laughs> um, <laughs> the uh, global head of capital markets at the time, a guy named Dan, basically calls me to his office and starts asking me all these questions. I immediately got nervous thinking, I've done something wrong. I missed something with the yeah, client. Yeah, yeah. And he said, no, um, our phone's ringing off the hook. We have more business than we actually have product available right now. Wow. What did you do? Welcome, everyone, to the Comms Coffee Club podcast um, with senior communications leader and PR extraordinaire, Elena Francis. Um, Hi, she's American. Thanks for having she, me. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, so she's American, but she lived in the UK for how long have you lived here now, Elena? Over five years now. Over I'm five nearly years. a citizen. <laughs> oh, yes. How's that going? Uh, it's going. I have a definite leave to remain. Uh, so no more visas for me. And uh, now just uh, have to get my paperwork together for the uh, citizenship. So very excited about that. Nice. Great. Did you do your test? I did. I did. I had to study a long time. There was some tough questions on there, but I, I am actually very glad that I took it because I, I um, it really was very interesting and uh, I like to learn history. So it was good. Yeah, great. Good stuff. Um, so uh, for the benefit of our audience, um, first question. So who are you uh, and how did you get to the senior global PR position that you're in today? Yes. Uh, well, so currently I am the head, global head of PR for a FTSE 250 fintech company. And uh, I've been there, gosh, over two years now. Um, I moved over to the UK over five years ago for personal reasons. Um, but at the time I was working for Marsh McLennan um, and I had been working for them for years. So they let me transfer my job over and actually kind of created a new global role for me, which was great. Um, but going back further to that, how I sort of started, um, I really was very interested, always interested in the press and writing and communicating. And so my in my earliest days, I had uh, internships at a PR agency and um, for a, a broadcast television show in New York. It was like local, yeah. local New York City. And yeah. um, it was also fascinating to me. So I graduated from uni. I um, started applying right away wound up on the agency side for a few years and then went in-house. So I've had some amazing roles at um, very large and some small companies, um, mostly publicly traded, um, except for PwC, that was partner model. And yeah. um, I've just had some amazing experiences, you know, uh, learning, traveling. Um, so it's it's been great. I really love it. Nice. Uh, and you spoke about those early roles in PR in New York. Uh, why did you go into PR? What did you really like about it? So when I was in high school, so my teen years, I was um, an avid reader, loved to write, um, you know, was always at the library, was editor of my high school newspaper, um, you know, yeah. and so I was always fascinated with the press um, to reach a large number of people um, with information um, was always fascinating to me. I always think that there's, you know, three main areas of um, influence. So government is one, business being another, and then the, the press being the third. Yeah. And to me, the press was always the most uh, fascinating because it could be checks and balances on the other two. So, you know, obviously uh, on the government and private sector. So yeah. it was when I started working on the agency side, um, it was amazing. I mean, it was, you know, obviously when you start on the agency side, you usually grouped with people roughly around your age and experience. And um, I just learned so much, obviously things like media databases and such, the technology evolves over time, but the principles really do endure. So, mm. you know, how to communicate effectively, um, I don't think that those things have really changed um, exponentially over time. It's really more um, the tools that we're using to communicate. But I, I've loved mm. it. 
honestly, from the beginning, um, and I've had so many fascinating experiences and, and really crossed paths with so many unexpected people like President Clinton and other government huh? officials and former yeah. prime ministers. Um, so uh, among many others, some celebrities. And uh, okay. so it's it's been a fun ride. It's been quite yeah. interesting. Nice. Uh, and what was Bill Clinton like? Tell me about Bill. Just as charismatic in real life as he was, um, you know, as as people you know say that he is, um, you know, wherever you stand on the uh, political spectrum, you know, if you yeah. prefer him or not, you cannot deny that um, if you are in a room with him, honestly, everyone he talks to really feels like they are the most important person in the room. So I have to give his communication skills an A plus because he really does deliver on, on that front. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think, um, yeah, you know, for all the, and for all the tabloid press, if you like, um, uh, for his, uh, his skills with the ladies, shall we say, um, I've listened to numerous podcasts where, yeah, actually several people have said, um, you know, certainly in terms of public figures, you know, he's, he's one and actually, and interestingly, um, I was listening to a podcast with, uh, with, um, Charlotte church last week. Um, and she was saying, yeah, it was both Bill Clinton, uh, and Hillary actually, um, they, they were the two like a list famous people in the States that she said they both genuinely came across like they had time for her. And, yes. and they'd speak to everyone, by the way, like in the room. Uh, and she said, you know, the amount of A-list people who you meet who often come across like they don't want to be there <laughs> or they don't want to talk to you. And um, yeah, that's interesting to hear that, you, that, yeah, kind of you had a similar experience with Bill. So Totally. We had done, uh, my a former company of mine had done a, um, uh, a sub sponsorship for the Clinton Global Initiative. So that's that was how I wound up you know, meeting him at an event, but, uh, but his, it was the content and the delivery that really, he, he just has such high quality on both fronts, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, it's hard not to be engaged by him, no matter if you know him, don't know him, how you feel about him. It's, it's hard not to be sort of drawn in by his delivery. <laughs> yeah, no, nice. Great. Um, when your agency side, I mean, I know this is going back a while, but um what accounts did you work on? Who were your, uh, yeah, yeah, kind of who were your main accounts? Oh, gosh, it was so long ago. Um, You know, it was an American firm. And at the time, it was sort of the dot-com boom. So there were okay. some accounts that are no longer like techies.com, um, which was an IT recruiting um, site. And then, uh, okay. but I did work on a company called Optimum Online. Um, uh, at the time, might have been known as Cablevision. So they were a tech company. Um, and then I worked for some professional services firms, um, smaller names. Um, the agency, one of the agencies I worked for, though, we all one of our accounts was also a small online bookseller called Amazon.com at the time. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so we worked on that one, which was uh, pretty crazy. Um, you know, yeah. obviously they they were only selling books at that time, okay. and uh, yeah, so yeah, they've evolved you, since yeah, then. Yeah. Yeah. And can you remember how much they paid for their retainer? Oh gosh, no, I I would not remember that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I bet it's nowhere near what their PR agency spend is nowadays. Hey, that would be. Uh, Listen, yeah, I would have been happy to get options for that. I would have done it for free <laughs> if yeah. I knew we were getting options. Yeah, yeah. And what was PR agency um, like back then? On the, you know, was it very much you know work hard, play hard, out boozing with clients? Yes, it, it was definitely a different world, I think, for a few reasons. Um, number one, I think the dot-com boom really did, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, venture capital money in, and uh, we definitely worked hard, definitely. Um, but there was uh, a lot of more travel, more, um, you know, travel expenses, um, and I, I would say, obviously, the technology evolved over time. Um, it wasn't as good back then as it is now. Um, but, yes. you know, and there was there was no really remote working. More people had, you know, desktops. If you had a laptop, you were still expected to be in the office. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but but it was fun. And it, it was really great, especially being younger in my experience and career. It was, I think, yes. really good to have that sort of in-office um, 
dynamic. So, yeah. And uh, what was PR agency? I guess what was the main what was the main uh, sort of goal for clients? Was it just pure sort of media relations and press coverage? Was that the thing that everyone just wanted? Was there anything else with it? Yeah, I mean, people obviously had websites. So a lot of the things were a lot more sort of rudimentary about, you know, how much if you if your website was mentioned, you know, in a New York Times article. Yeah. Did you see the web traffic go up? You know, so that was, you know, obviously different, different times. Um, Now, I think there's a lot more healthy skepticism. Um, you know, obviously it's good to see web traffic increasing, um, but I think there are other tools, like other um, metrics that mm. that matter as well. So, yeah, um, we will get on to that later, of course. Um, who were your biggest influences early on in your career? So I would say, um, so I worked for one agency called Connors Communications, which doesn't exist anymore, sadly. It was run by a woman named Connie Connors. And um, I have got to say, most of the senior leadership there, um, it it was a great agency because they were were very collaborative. It was, you know, sort of one of those open, locked, you know, uh, you know, situations. And there was a lot of team building. Um, but it was also like whatever needed to get done could, mm. would get done in one shape or form or another. So they were very sort of creative. We would do fun programs, um, but they were also really good to the employees in the sense of if you had worked overtime, then, you know, maybe they would let you sort of do a little bit of travel, like make those days up. So they did have respect you know there was it was very work hard but then there was the reward at the end um so i would say most of that most of the leadership there um you know there was a lot of personality it was a lot it was just like a lot of good fun um while you're doing the job nice and then how about when you moved in-house um you know i will say i have the the main difference between in-house and agency side is that you do have a lot of um, different influences in terms of the types of individuals that you're dealing with. So when you're in-house, yeah. obviously you're dealing with legal teams and compliance and you know marketing and the business side, product yeah. sales, et cetera. And I will say that I really didn't, I really have enjoyed being in-house because it has given me much more of a business perspective and mm. has really sort of enhanced how I um, develop my PR and communications programs. So, you know, obviously in the earlier days, it was more about, okay, how many press releases and how are we communicating? Whereas now my um, style has evolved to one that's much more um, cohesive, integrated, really sort of not saying, not going to an internal client, say, you know, a CEO or a country leader and saying to them, um, all right, well, if they say to me, I want a press release, I don't say, okay. I say, well, why do you want the press release? What is the actual end business goal that you want to achieve? A press release might be the right way to achieve it, but it might not. So let's talk about what your actual end goal is, and then we'll work backward to develop whatever program you need. And in some cases, it's not PR. In some cases, it's marketing. In some cases, it's public affairs. Now, I also got my MBA in finance and marketing um, while I was in New York. And um, a lot of, um, you know, people within business, uh, like say my accounting class, really just sort of wrote off um, communications and marketing as a sunk cost. And I personally disagree because um, I have seen many cases where programs I've implemented have directly resulted in new business and substantive, you know, amount of new business. So Mm. half a million, million dollars of new business. Um, In one case, it was a new product when I was working at a company called Swiss Re. And they, you know, really went from people not knowing what the financial product was to literally um, demand outstripping supply. And so, and that was in the course of like a year and a half. So um, that, you know, knowing what other departments want 
and what the business goals are really yeah. is important to know in communications and PR. Yeah. We'll circle back to that Swiss re example in a minute, actually, because I want to sort of dig into a bit more of that. Um, but yeah, you talked about, um, yeah, you know, asking what, what the business goal is or what the business objective is. Um, you mentioned, yeah, you know, you get your senior leaders say, oh, I want a press release on this. What's the most common goal that they think they're going to get from you or what they want when you ask that question? What's the most common? I mean, it's funny because in some cases, they, um, whoever's asking me, they might not even know what what it is that they want. You know, so in some cases, they, they just want general awareness. Um, you know, in some cases, okay. sales goal. Um, but in some cases, it's been, well, I want to make my investors aware that our business is doing well. And so that's a great okay. example to say that, well, maybe... PR isn't the best way because if you issue a press release that no reporters write up, um, you know, that reporters don't cover, then, you know, then, then the investors aren't seeing it. So maybe in that case, it would be better to go directly to the investors in another way to communicate the news that you want to give them. So that's why I always try to get to more of the root of what the end business goal is. So if I know they're trying to expand, they want awareness of a product in a certain country or, um, you know, they're trying to um, they want to expand in, you know, in one region um, you know, then that's very definitive to me. The more granular detail I can get in as yeah. far as what it is that they want. So who are their end users or buyers? You know, is it yeah. B2B? Is it B2C? Um, yeah. All of those things really matter um, for how how I would approach the, um, the strategy and the tactics. Sure. And um, with that in mind, then where do you draw the line between what needs PR? No, what is PR versus what is marketing? Well, so you also have to keep in mind, and I think the, I, I, the biggest mistake I think PR people sometimes make is, well, if we care about it, then the press will care about it. So the other thing you have to think about with the press is what, what is the press writing about right now? And what do they care about? So, you know, if everyone's writing about um, inflation and, you know, Ukraine and the ability of, you know, supply chain management, and you're writing about, you know, something that is completely superfluous to that, then you're not going to probably get the, you know, sort of Hmm. interest. You're not going to generate the interest and and the write-up that you want. So you have to really be sort of respectful of the news cycle and really understand yes. if we're approaching the press right now, it has to be within the context of what is literally happening in the world right now. So if you just sort of go out there and say, okay, I don't care, you know, about mm-hmm. this. Um, and I'm, and I just feel like we need to, we need to get coverage for this. That is, uh, you know, I think you have to sort of pivot your content strategy um, mm-hmm. to really sort of address where the world is today, um, especially if you're doing something that's more on the disposable income side. And yeah. then if, if you're in a you know low interest rate, high inflation environment, and people are suffering to pay their normal bills, if you're promoting something that's more discretionary, then you're going to have a much harder time unless you're just hitting sort of very niche, you know, yes. luxury publications, um, you know, with your product. Mm. Uh, so w- with that in mind and the Swiss re example then where um yeah you took a new product to market, is that right? Um yes. yeah. So talk me through what you did from a PR perspective then and um yeah, uh how that how that led to uh yeah, and how that led to those sales. So I had, um, there were some uh, challenges when I started working on this. So the, the product at the time was something called insurance link securities. So okay. effectively, they would take insurance premiums, package them into bonds and sell yep. them to institutional investors. So okay. it sounds like a lot. It's obviously B2B. It's not for yeah, retail yeah. investors. Um, but to me, it was 
there was it was a very fascinating proposal because the USP was very unique. So um, effectively, these um, insurance premiums were, were um, related to natural catastrophes. So the bond okay. would only trigger um, if there was a natural catastrophe. So effectively, these bonds were not at all tied to you know, interest rates or what was happening on the economic cycle. So okay. um, for institutional investors, this was an outstanding proposal because it was a great diversifying asset for them. But because okay. it was new, it wasn't getting a lot of traction. So okay. effectively, what I did was um, one one great thing I had working in my favor was the people who were to be the spokespeople were extremely adept. They knew their, um, they knew the product, they knew the context, like they were very good salespeople. I hate to say it, um, yeah, yeah. but they could, they could, tr they could pivot. So, you know, obviously the way you sell directly to a client is different from wh the way you talk to a reporter because you can't sell to a reporter. They'll snip okay. it out. They'll shut you down. So the spokespeople we had were very, I would say methodical and cautious and very matter of fact with the press, which really worked mm -hmm. well. But the selling point was, you know, obviously volatile markets you need to have in your portfolio. You need to have um, different things that will offset risk of other investments. Yep. And, and that was the main selling point. So on my end, it was um, at that time, it wasn't actually just PR. Um, I was doing my MBA at night while working for this firm and yes. um, I, I sort of created, um, you know, I became like a mini chief communication slash chief marketing officer for this yep. one product. Okay. And I basically did, you know, events, sponsorships, uh, PR, um, yep. you know, awards. So it was it was a mix of things. And I think the integration of um, educating the press. So I would do these um, intimate um, round tables where we would have a yes. dinner and we'd have someone from the team at each table of press to ask questions. And it was, you know, off the record so they could speak freely. And reporters were quite fascinated by this. And because we had a lot of FaceTime, the reporters yes. could really sort of ask these questions. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously it was not an overnight process. Um, it was, you know, many months, um, probably a year and a half, I would say, of really sort of going to the press, doing these marketing uh, sponsorships, the events, you know, what have you. And um, after about a year and a half, the uh, global head of capital markets at the time, a guy named Dan, basically calls me to his office and starts asking me all these questions. Mm -hmm. I immediately got nervous thinking, I've done something wrong. I missed something with the yeah, client. Yeah, yeah. And he said, no, um, our phone's ringing off the hook. We have more business than we actually have product available right now. Wow. What did you do? And so okay. I really took that as, um, you know, I wish he had led with that. And I said, next time, don't, don't ask me the questions without telling me the good news first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but in that specific case, that was, you know, we didn't do anything that was viral. We didn't do anything that was super exciting or sexy. It was really... Yep common sense, persistence, consistency, and integration, um, you know, between different communications models. Um, yes. So, you know, obviously the mix of marketing, PR, events, etc. So that to me was such a wake up call for me that you could have such an effect on business mm. if you just think, you know, okay, who is the end buyer? What mm. How do we elicit a response in them that will be interesting to them and yes. really compelling for them? And so um, it really worked out well. And I, I think Swiss Re really is still a, a real leader in the ILS space because they had that sort of early market capture. Mm. Um, mm. Again, it is down to the quality of the product and the quality of the team as well. I'm not going to no, take you know, all the credit. Um, they really, it is really an outstanding uh, organization in terms of, you know, the products and stuff. Um, but they let me do what I needed to do and didn't really ask me a lot of questions. And I just created a program and it really worked out well for all of us. Yeah, no, nice. Great. Um, um, and when you talk about, yeah, sort of the internal team and the, the, 
sales in inverted commas or the people that led it was, you know, did you have a dedicated sales team at Swiss Re or was this kind of getting the actuaries sort of on the ground round at the dinner tables with the um, journalists or, um, yeah, yeah, kind of who your spokespeople? Um, well, so for that team, this is going back uh, quite a ways, but um, they, yeah, yeah. these were people who worked on the capital markets desk. So they yeah. were, I think it was a mis- mix of the traders um, and, um, but yeah, I, I don't think they were dedicated salespeople. I think they were traders yeah, who yeah. were also amazing with, with the, um, with the, uh, with the markets, with the uh, institutional investors. Oh yeah, no, I get it. And um, yeah, I, um, I think it doesn't matter what industry you're in, whether you're in sort of recruitment or, or in insurance. Um, I think if you put someone with, with, uh, sales in their job title, in front of a journalist or in front of an institutional investor, you yeah. know, immediately it's red flags. It's like, what are they trying to sell me? Yeah, <laughs> so, it, yeah. it is harder. It is harder. Yes. But uh, again, yeah. the team at that time was was very good. I can't remember their exact titles, but I think they were more yeah. capital markets uh, folks. Got it. Got it. Got it. Um, what do you love most about PR? Um, I would say, first of all, I, I really genuinely love working with the press. I really do. Um, there's so many, you know, super intelligent people. And I have, I really do have, you know, obviously in any industry, you're going to have, you know, people who don't know what their job is that goes as well for PR as it does for the press. Um, yeah. But genuinely, when you're reading high quality journalism, you are, it is an education every day. And when you have, um, you know, they really can change the course of history, you know, in terms of mm. government, uh, in terms of business, you know, I, I won't, you know, give a laundry list of too many, uh, of you course. know, of the, uh, uh, the investigations, but, you know, things like Wirecard, um, yeah, yeah. which I just saw a documentary on. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating to see um, that, you know, the accountability that's there. So dealing with the press, I really do love. But on the actual business side, I I love having the exposure to different areas of an organization. Um, you know, a lot of people, especially in PR, don't like working with legal. I really, I've never had a problem with legal. I actually have okay. met some really amazing people in legal and compliance. They are there to keep you safe and to be a partner. Um, yep. But really being able to learn so much about things. So you know, uh, when I was at Marsh McLennan, um, you know, we were, uh, it was uh, consulting for um, organizations for their health benefits, for their, um, you know, retirement benefits, uh, for their uh, talent, you know, acquisition. So I mm. learned a lot about, you know, uh, diversity, inclusion programs, all the different consulting. So I'm, mm. I'm learning about, you know, what's happening in the world through the products and services that you know we're offering but being yes. able to really be that connector between the press and the organization in a way that is mutually beneficial for both of them so what's happening in the world and what it is the company wants to achieve and being yes. able to be that conduit i really when it works well and again i have had you know situations at every examples at every company i've worked at mm. where it has been so beneficial, not just financially, but from, um, you know, a content standpoint, Mm. a relationship standpoint. And um, Mm. that's, that's, and it's different every day. You're never getting the same situation every day because the world is always changing. Products are always changing. So that's, I think, what I love about PR and communications. Nice. Um, I think you're right about the, um, yeah, Often, yeah, a lot of PR and communications people find it difficult, particularly with legal and compliance. Um, you know, they tend to be very naturally quite risk averse people, obviously. <laughs> um, yeah. Don't have to name, you know, and don't and don't name the organisation because I know, you know, a lot of this stuff is certainly definitely confidential. But um, can you talk me through a, you know, a good example of, uh, yeah, of where you've, you know, formed a really good relationship and, you know worked really well with legal to yeah either on a sort of proactive or a sort of reactive crisis point um yeah have you got a really good example from your career where you've done that gosh i mean honestly i really have a wealth of examples to give but i would say probably the most 
prominent one would be the 9-11 litigation that I worked on when I was at Swiss Re. Mm. Um, so this was a case where effectively Swiss Re was the largest reinsurer for the World Trade Center. And so yes. when that, um, obviously when the terror attacks happened, um, there was a um, debate about whether the property was insured as one property or as um, mm. two, you know, with, with, with the uh, real estate owner get paid twice for each, you know, once for each tower or, yes, you know, but he had actually insured it as a single entity. So it was only supposed to be one payout. And so um, this, he, even though the letter of the insurance contract was on our side, mm. the developer tried to win in the court of public opinion and was giving mm. a lot of um, embellished or not entirely mm. correct information to the press mm. in order to give mm. a negative influence. Mm. And so, you know, the issue that we had was that anything that was, you know, emailed or, you know, documented anywhere would be submissible in a court of law. So we had mm. to be incredibly um, coordinated and, yes. <laughs> excuse me, and tied together in terms mm. of that. <laughs> excuse me. So, and this was also a prolonged case. It was obviously high stakes, um, mm. you know, money, um, and this went on for years. And so um, there were so many moving parts. And, um, you know, I, I was effectively whenever it would, you know, rise up and then it would fade away for a bit yes. because, you know, filings and stuff and such. Um, but it was constant coordination with them. But I will say a, another case from a, a job after that. Um, I don't want to say which one, but it was a sure. it was a potential data um, data breach. And so it was with a European country and mm. um, again, not getting too specific because no, of, of you know, whatever. Um, but the, um, the lawyer in that European country and I mm. were talking about the risk of what the data was. So the data that was at risk in this country mm. was um, the equivalent of say um, a social security number in the U S mm. now a social security number getting released is a huge uh, risk for individuals um, in America. But in this particular European country, it, it that number doesn't hold the same weight. Yes. And so the thing is, though, that it was this the lawyer in that country mm. who, um, you know, sort of was the one who, I, who basically told me that number doesn't matter as much in this country as it does in your country. And I Go love ahead. that because that completely changed excuse me, a little bit how we were going to approach this strategy because it wasn't, yes. it kind of reduced the risk on, on our end. And yes. so sharing that cultural information, um, you know, she really was influential in providing the local perspective um, because she was mm. uh, based in that country. And so, you know, honestly, I, I I wouldn't think of a situation where I, I wasn't helped and supported by legal and compliance, um, you know, especially during times of crisis, because we're all working toward the same goal. Uh, yes. So it's always really been a great partnership. Oh, great. No. And actually, yeah, kind of that's a really good example. And um, yeah, you know, data is um, increasingly and more common uh, a a source of businesses, uh I guess thorns in their side, and um, it will become even more so as uh, yeah, as databases get larger, you know, more people move everything online. Um, you know, clearly, obviously, in the UK recently, you know, we've had the very public um, Coots and NatWest um, fees with Nigel Farage, and um, uh, you know, I think him being able to access his personal data with a GDPR request, um, which which of course you can do here. I don't, as far as I'm aware, I don't believe the US has a similar thing. Um, and, um, you know, certainly all of that data they held um, more than added a couple of um, jerry cans of fuel to the fire. So, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, yeah, and how that's managed. Um, yeah, certainly. Nice. Um, yeah, so I guess with that in mind, there's a yeah, you know, there's clearly a slightly different regulatory environment um, in the UK, Europe, certainly with the US. Um, obviously, yeah, you spent how long did you spend working in 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 the US? 
Oh gosh, um, better part of two decades. Yeah, I would say almost twenty years. I would say, Um, and then I've been over here for about five. So five. uh, Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you've got a good experience of the UK too. Um, Yes. What are the biggest differences between PR in the US and the UK? I mean, you know, first and foremost, the pay. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it, you know, I mean, you can't get around that. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. that said, yeah. that said, <laughs> uh, I mean, joking aside, I, it, it is um, surprisingly different. Um, mm. But, you know, obviously pay, you know, from US to UK differs, um, you know, uh, for, for myriad reasons. And, you know, we have more of a safety net in the UK as far as, you know, healthcare and stuff. So it, it's not an apples to apples comparison. Well, of course. Um, but here's the thing. So I've been in the UK for several years and I don't know if it's a difference between US and UK or this is a general trend because obviously I can only work in one country at a time. So I don't know if this is happening, you know, elsewhere. Okay. Um, I do have a concern that um, in the last several years that mm. um, people are not validating or prioritizing PR and communications as much as I think that they should be. I think that there has been sort of an expectation of it's just there to track media hits and put out press, you know, issue press releases and mm. answer the phone. And it, it is actually so much more or can be so much more involved than that. Mm. And um, it is really an experience driven role. So, you know, yes, there are some very bright people that may have five or 10 years uh, experience, mm. but, when, you know, you have had, um, when you've been able to see things over the course of 20 plus years, mm-hmm. you are going to have a much different perspective. So obviously I look at myself when I was in 10 years, you know, worth of experience. Yes, nice. I was doing a very good job and I was a very hard worker. Um, but there was no way to compensate for the lack of actual experience and the, yes. you know, being able to just see certain scenarios and, and to be able to build on that and build on your connections and, you know, mm. see how things evolve over time. So I would say that there is this devaluation of the um, the role of communications. And mm. it's a real, it is kind of uh, disappointing because of the examples I've given. I mean, I worked at, uh, you know, PwC for a couple of years mm. and I created a content uh, and social media strategy mm. that resulted in nearly a, a million dollars of new business. And yes. this is 10 years ago. And so um, to me, there there can be concrete um, ways to, you know, really make that connection uh, between, you know, communications and what the business goals are. And I, yes. I think that there is a failure. Um, there is a lack of understanding, I would say, on the business side. Um, so hmm. teams are smaller, um, you know, or really sort of what, almost non-existent. What? What smaller in the UK compared to the US, or? Yeah, it does seem as if yes, they are smaller um, mm. right now uh, here. So again, it it does seem like uh, the UK, like they sort of they they're they're not valuating as much. But again, mm. I, I'm not in the US, so I'm not really sure. Um, you know, if they're also sort of devaluating. No, but it'd be interesting, um, you know, I think if you take your PwC, for example, um, you know, actually, you know, here in the UK, um, they have a, you know, they have a fairly large uh, PR team. And actually that goes for, um, you know, all of the big four um, here. You know, I certainly think, yeah, those professional services firms, um, you know, certainly do see the value in PR. I think it probably ties in particularly well in the, in the sector where um you know their clients um they really appreciate but they buy into um you know that wider thought leadership content-led pr um you know the increasing rise of podcasts for example um you know, you know the pwc uh, gender pay gap report here in the uk um, you know, they were the first of the consulting firms to go large on it. Um, yes. and, and I know that they want a lot of business off that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you know, I, 
I certainly think, yeah, you know, there are there are some firms that definitely do value it. But yeah, I think if you were to take a, a like-for-like comparison of um, communications teams across most businesses compared to marketing, for example, yeah, there's no, you know, there's no comparison. You know, they are, they are, they are much smaller. Um, you know, the PR, you know, the PR agency world, particularly in London, has a you know, has a big presence and a lot of firms um, outsource a lot of their PR. Um, yeah. You know, I'm obviously biased, but, <laughs> um, you know, I, I I will always advocate for bringing as much of that in-house as possible. Um, you know, as you say, I think, you know, not just from an experience point of view, but, um, you know, you talk about those sort of relationships that you built with legal and compliance, you know, particularly for crisis. If a crisis kicks off, you know, it's it's um, it's much easier, but it's also faster to handle if you have those relationships in house and you know someone, and you know you have your you know kind of you have your crisis comms plans in place, but also yeah. you know it's just a phone call or a Teams or a quick Teams call away from being able to um, you know think up a response and what to do. Whereas if you outsource everything to agency. You know, you don't have someone that knows the business that well. You know, they've got a roster of clients. They're across everyone. You know, it takes, you know, it could take 24, 48 hours to get a response put together. And, um, you know, in today's 24-hour news cycle and social media, you know, a day, two days can be, um, you know, stuff can get out of hand very quickly. So, yeah, yeah. no, I, I think you're right. Um, yeah, kind of what was it like in the U.S., where, you know, when you were working there was, uh, you yeah, was was PR and comms sort of respected more or? Um, I mean, I would say I did find more um, executives being more attuned to how, you know, the, the power it could wield. So, mm, you know, mm. in the example of Swiss Re, they sort of said, okay, you know, come up with your proposals. And, you know, I, I can't think of a situation where they, with the ILS situation where they told me yes. no, you know, and I wasn't okay. asking for a lot of money, yes. you know, it was little things here and there, but, you know, mm. I, I was judicious uh, in my requests, but there was, mm. they were also very fair. And yes. so um, it's, it's rarer to see that here um, and now, but again, this mm. was years ago. So it could be an issue of, you know, this is an evolution of time uh, that people valued it more back then and they don't value it as much mm. now. So mm. it may mm. be a US-UK thing. I'm not sure. Uh, I think uh, it's a generalization. But, um, you know, in my experience, I think PR and comms people are very good at doing PR and comms for their company. They're not very good at doing PR and comms for themselves. And as yeah. in, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, flying that flag internally and, you know, you know, really, really pushing for that investment and being able to justify it. Um, you know, I get communications can be can be more difficult to track from an ROI perspective, but you know, I think if you look at the growth of marketing, you know, even even non-revenue generating functions such as HR and IT, um, you know, they've, you know, they've grown exponentially over the last, you know, 10, 15 years um, and PR and comms hasn't. So, yeah, that's an interesting one. I'm not quite sure what the answer is, but um, yeah, he's hoping to a sort of brighter future really. But yeah, did you, uh, I guess, yeah, have you got any thoughts on, yeah, on, yeah, on sort of how you can, you know, drive that investment in communications? Well, I, I, I would say that I think more on the, from the communication side, I would say that more communications folks have to be more invested in what the business goals are mm. and really sort of say, Hey, you know, it's not just about PR, it's about where, where it is that mm. you actually want to go and ask yes. those questions and really develop the relationships internally between the different mm. departments. Um, but, you know, from, <clears throat> from the business side, <clears throat> excuse me, I would say that, you know, the business really has to, I think it would be worth investigating, you know, like realizing and recognizing that this is an untapped resource that really mm. could 
provide the visibility and the credibility that a lot of companies need right now. So there's, there's a lot of reactive behavior like, oh, we have this crisis or we need this right now, but there's no, so they, they'll throw sort of money at projects or mm. different campaigns, but it has to be something that's much more consistent. So mm. if you want, if, say if you have a, a, a crisis, um, the, you know, what's the first thing of crisis? You should have been developing positive, you know, reputational mm. communications months and years before the crisis actually happens. Yes. So if you have a solid reputation, that is going to help, um, number one, the position when you're trying to respond to the crisis. Mm. Um, in the mid to longer term, your overall credibility and ability to sort of bounce back from these kinds of things. Um mm. The one actually going back to your other question about differences between U.S. and U.K., the one thing that does really sort of surprise me is that a lot of people mm. sort of start in one type of industry or company and they yes. never veer from that. So like if you work at a bank, you always work at a bank and that, that's, that's where you live and die. And um, I would say in the U.S., people do tend to move around more and they will go to different industries. Mm. Obviously, it makes more sense, like, say, for me, I've worked in professional services, insurance, financial services, tech. Um, yes. You know, I haven't done PR for, you know, a major coffee company or fashion. Um, yes. So those kinds of jumps are, you know, maybe a little bit more um, larger, you know, to sort of mm. connect the dots. But I will say that it is fascinating that. Um, in the UK, it tends to be very sort of saying you will only work for certain companies. People tend to stay in jobs much longer here than in the US, um, yeah. which I, I don't know the reasons for that, to be honest with you. Um, you know, it might just be people like where they work and, you know, mm. fine. Um, whereas in the US, I think, you know, generally get bigger pay jobs when you're moving. Um, yes. So, people, you know, I don't know if it's the same here. Um, probably it is, but, um, but I do think that, it, you know, it's great to have people who've been in the same industry and have that sort of legacy, but I think you should really have people on your team that have diversity of the industries they've worked on in mm. within, because it will add diversity of thought into the team and, and in the business overall and might give much needed perspective on, you mm. know, where to go with communications yes i get that totally it's um yeah perhaps it's uh um it, the uk psyche um you know i think we you know we tend to be a bit more conservative and a little bit more risk averse for sure there's definitely that 100 percent um you know i think the media here as well um you know is very very intense super intense yeah. and you know if they get you know, the media here, you know, if they get their claws into uh, into a meaty crisis or a you know or a meaty company that you know they've taken a disliking to of something, you know, they they will go and go and go and go, and that will dominate headlines for weeks. And it's not like that's in other countries. So I think um, you know that can often build through in into the hiring pipeline where whereby so many companies tend to go for that sector experience because they have that you know it's the what if isn't it it's you know you know what if something gets picked up in a couple of months time and you know we're suddenly front page news for a couple of weeks you know having someone who's got some sector experience knows the journalists you know hopefully you know it wouldn't be that bad if we had someone who knew them and they could, you know, sort of douse those flames, if you like, um, so that it doesn't sort of snowball and develop. So I think, yeah, yeah, potentially that's where some of that sort of some of that comes from. Conscious, yeah, you know, you've talked about some of the differences, closest similarities between the US and UK. What would you say? Have they got any? Um, I mean, I, I generally think the practices are, you know, roughly the same. Um, you know, I think that most countries are living in a world where you're, 
it's rare that you're only doing PR for your one country. Mm. Um, Even if you are only, if you're an organization that's only based in the UK, Mm. you still have. So as an example, if you are a financial institution in the UK, you still have to deal with Brexit and, you know, Mm. the, you know, uh, talent pipeline and, Mm. you know, doing business, um, you know, with people who may, you know, be living or working in other places. Yes. So I would say that um, we all are living in sort of much more of an interconnected in terms of, mm. you know, between countries. So I think that that is something that is a similarity that we're all sort of struggling with the impacts of things that are happening, um, socioeconomic, geopolitical, mm. Mm. all of those things, even if they're happening outside of your country, you're yes. still having to deal with, you know, with that, with that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So I think that that's a, that's a commonality there is having to be aware of everything, what the impact of geopolitical, uh, you know, situations are right now. Yeah. No that's very true. Yeah. And that, um, yeah, I guess that blend of sort of corporate affairs as well comes into it too. Right. Um, totally. yeah. And being aware of the, uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, you do so much of, you know, PR and comms now is not necessarily just about, you know, it's not just about the business press or the trade press. Um, you know, there are countless examples, um, you know, particularly this year, um, you know, sort of whether it's ESG or, um, you know, things around pride or the trans movement and, um, yeah, you know, a lot of companies are, um, you know, coming under, under fire, shall we say, put it the right way, uh, a, you know, f- from various elements of, you know, sort of of the press or the public on social media. And, um, yeah, I think, I think being conscious of that as a PR and comms person is, uh, you know, is, is, uh, rightly or wrongly very important now. Totally. Um, who's the best CEO you've worked for in terms of their communications? I mean, I'm glad you said CEO because there's so many people that I've worked with that have been really great. Um, I would say that, um, so there was one CEO, sadly, he has retired now. He's enjoying his retirement. Um, But there was a CEO named Piero Zendo that I worked with many years ago during my time in Swissery. And um, he was absolutely just an outstanding individual to work with uh, for myriad reasons. Um, he was incredibly collaborative and when he was collaborative, it was at all levels. So I was in a more junior role back then. And I remember I'd be on calls and it'd be all these like senior people and, um, you know, insurance and reinsurance is heavily skewed toward, you know, one gender and it's not female. (laughs) And, um, so, um, you know, he, would make a point to say on calls like, and Elena, what do you think? Or what, what's your thought on this? Yes. And I have to say that it, it really set a precedent that, you know, no matter what your level or, you know, what your background was that you could have valid opinions. And so yes. he really did recognize talent and incorporated that into the process um, so I would say that that was, and he was also obviously incredibly intelligent, very professional and someone yes. who was just very easy, um, to work with as far as, you know, we would, um, develop information and messages for him. You know, we would deliver to him. He was just a very engaged partner. Yes. Um, in my current role, he's not a CEO, but I have to give him a shout out. A guy named Kevin Alego, who is, uh, mm-hmm. our country leader for Australia and he is just an incredibly, again, it's it's about being collaborative and yes. sharing information, um, you know, from the business side saying, hey, this is happening in this area and just mm. connecting the right people. Um, it, he's a, a great example of getting the best out of everyone and, you know, sharing of resources, bringing the right people together um, and really just sort of letting them do what they need to do and then stepping in to say, okay, here's, here's what I need to do. But he, he's just such an outstanding professional in terms of understanding the role that communications plays in the, um, in the business. So Mm. that's, that's off the top of my head. 
no nice great and uh yeah uh, uh, in terms of their you know are they have they also been you know spokespeople and if you put them in front of the media and have they yeah have they just flown and shone what are they like uh, i mean i some some people were just sort of born to do it you know they yes. really have the it does, I think, really um, help if you have a high EQ, if mm. you recognize that, um, you know, the power of communication and how to connect with people. And, you know, there is a degree of humanity. So if you go in and, you know, if, if you have a spokesperson that goes in and says, oh, hi, you know, thanks for meeting with me. I read your last story on X and mm. what have you. It immediately just sort of lends that credibility and that humanity. And so, yes. you know, some people have it from the get-go, um, but there have been people that really didn't know what they were doing, but after media training and sort of coaching, mm. they really did um, turn it around. There have been a few cases where people were just, they didn't want to do it. They've been told they have to do it. They really didn't yes. want to be there. And um, those situations, we, they, wound up not doing as much with them because you can't sort of drag people to do that sort of thing. They really have to be an active partner. Um, so, but, but those have been much more rare. I think a lot of people do want to see their names in print. <laughs> yes. So it, it, you know, I think that helps, you know, so, some get very excited about it. They want yeah, yeah. to their parents or, you know, nice. spouses or what have you, which yeah, I, yeah. I yeah. find incredibly endearing. Yeah. Um, you know, it is, it's, it's work. It, it, it's important work. And yeah. so yeah, yeah. asking to show the people in their lives, you know, the results that they've achieved, like yeah. I have absolutely no problem with that. I think that's, I think that's amazing. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And that's certainly, and that's certainly one area where there's always going to be demand for real life print press. You know, there's nothing like kind of going down to the news agents in the morning and going to pick up a time, you know, like, a copy of the times or the ft and and as a spokesperson yeah you know sort of seeing your name there and um yeah you know kind of you can cut it out frame it and you put it up in the toilet <laughs> exactly exactly i know that's yeah, yeah. a british thing <laughs> yeah 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 well, yeah could we absolutely love that yeah yeah kind of with our like, sort of downstairs bathrooms for guests you know you've got your framed sort of media mentions on the wall um exactly. yeah that, yeah and and they not do that in the US. Is that is that is that really not That's a thing? That's not a thing in the US at all. No. Oh really? Oh <laughs> really? Would that be really toilet? weird no. if you went to the bathroom at someone's house and they had like a framed, uh, yeah, and like a framed article in their bathroom? Is that yeah? That's not a thing. So we we I don't have any you know media clips in in my downstairs loo, but um, yeah. we we do. I, I was aware of it, and so in in my toilet we do have other things, you know, other uh, pictures and accolades. Yeah, yeah. And so when my, when British people, you know, like they get it right away, but if I have American friends visiting, it's yes. always like a point of confusion. So yeah. Got it. Got it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's funny, isn't it? Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. How we've got, yeah. You know, sort of two countries with, um, yeah, you know, joined by so much, but also so very different with little cultural things like that. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's funny. Um, so last question for me, Elena. Um, what's the one thing in comms and PR that we should be talking about that we're not? Let's see. Um, I would say that uh, going forward, the integration between public affairs, public relations, marketing, um, I, I do feel mm -hmm. like there's, there's much more of a movement to have, you know, not necessarily that one becomes the other, um, but that they really should be um, m much more collaborative. Um, you know, I, I don't know if people are talking about this. I do, you know, again, it is sort of company specific, um, but I would say that having things siloed doesn't really uh, benefit, you know, that, yes. that everyone shouldn't be sort of in their own lane. I think there should be much more collaboration about content strategy, 
how content strategy relates to the business. I mean, again, going back to the PwC uh, point, um, it was a content strategy implemented through the social media, um, mm. you know, tactics mm. with what won the business from a direct competitor. Yeah. And so I think people vastly underestimate, you know, you shouldn't be creating content just for the sake of visibility or just to have something colorful on your website. It needs to be truly dynamic. Mm. It needs to be truly related to what it is that you're doing. Um, yes. You know, and, and that it, that it sort of begs more questions um, for your clients and really sort of sparks dialogue between your, whoever your stakeholders are. So mm. it might be clients, it might be regulators, it might be, you know, the local community, depending on what your priorities are. Yes. Um, I would say too, that with um, ESG and CSR, um, the other thing I see is that, you know, those kinds of departments are creating, um, you know, strategies and programs, but I think that communications and branding needs to be much more involved in that. And mm. what I mean by that is that, you know, say if you're working for a bank, um, you know, climate change might not, you're not going to have as much impact as a bank, um, on, you know, like on climate change, unless mm. you're doing a lot of crypto, as say, if you were a manufacturing, you know, firm, or, mm, you know, mm, if you were doing mm. something that actually you were a gas and oil company. So, you know, you have to sort of align what you care about, it has to be material. And mm. so there, I think that there is a bit of a, a gap right now, between what kind of CSR programs people are doing, mm. and what mm. they're actually like what's material to their organization and yes. I, I i think the bigger organizations may have it more figured out but the mid and smaller size organizations i feel like they they're more influenced by the preferences of maybe senior leadership as opposed mm. to you know like they might care about the environment which is great but if it's not material to what your organization's purpose is and what the business goals are then yeah. Why are why would you prioritize it? Like you have to look at what your company, what your company's impact is, and then sort of think about branding in terms of your, you know, ESG and CSR specifically. Oh yeah, no, I think I I think you're totally right, and um, yeah, I think yeah, you know, banks is a yeah, and banks are a good example. I think um, you know what you know what you probably said at the start of the podcast around um, you know making your PR and comms relevant to what people are talking about. Yes, of course you need to, but it, but you also need to mirror that with, you know, what does your business actually do? What products does it sell? Um, you know, you can't, you know, you can't try and, you know, shoehorn your business and, uh, and your products into try and fit something that's being talked about if there's no real substance behind behind that link um and yeah you know i i think it's starting uh the whole sort of greenwashing sort of debate and agenda i think yes. that's going to get really big that's going to get really big um and yeah i i think a lot of companies have have sort of launched themselves head first into it because it gets a lot of clicks and a lot of engagement mm -hmm. but uh, as journalists and as consumers start to scratch underneath the surface and do, you know, this, I guess this is where the really good investigative journalists come along. Yeah. There's going to be some egg on face and, um, yeah, a lot of that needs to be slightly better thought through. So yeah, I think you're right about that. So yeah, kind of, thank you very much. Um, thank you, Elena. This has been great. Thank you for having been, me. No, 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 super. Um, and actually, and I forgot to mention at the start, uh, this is episode one of the Coms Coffee Club podcast. So it's an honor to have had you on as our first guest. Um, genuinely, really interesting. Yeah. And you've got some great points there. And yeah, kind of thank you for your openness um, as well. Because uh, I know... Um, Certainly for PR people, sometimes you can always have your media hat on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, 
yes, it's great, you know, you know, kind of to actually, you know, sort of find out a bit more about about the person behind the podcast, which is great. Um, have you got anything which you'd like to plug at all? I know on LinkedIn, um, you're quite active with some of your uh, charity and sponsorship work of uh, rugby down in Wales. Do you want to tell yes. everybody a bit about that? Yes. Um, so, well, I um, actually am a trustee for a charity called School Food Matters. Um, and I have provided a lot of uh, communication support, um, <clears throat> obviously, as a board member doing other things as well. Um, but I have helped them uh, provided support as they, you know, hired communications people. Um, but um, my partner and I have also founded a charity Morehim. He founded yes. it. Um, but I've provided some uh, support, ongoing support for um, Jersey for All, which is a charity okay. that effectively connects philanthropists with girls and mixed ability sports teams um, because unfortunately they tend to get less funding than say boys and men's teams traditionally. Um, So um, this is a way to sort of just even the playing field pun intended um, to get more support for those kinds of girls and um you know, and uh, adult teams as well. So uh, it's it's been great. And it's it's great to lend my sort of work and business experience uh, within, you know, different uh, charities that I've worked on. So those are the ones I'm working on now. I've worked on others in the past. Um, yeah. but I'm a firm believer in giving back and, uh, you know, whatever, whatever I can do. Uh, I'd like to, I, I like to do things like that. So yes, Right, smashing. So, uh, yeah, school food matters and Jersey for all. Great, yeah, uh, yeah, and I will have to get the links off you to their websites, um, and I'll put it in the description um, for the podcast as well across all the channels. So, um, yeah, hopefully that drives a bit of engagement for them too. Great. Thank you so much again for having me. I really enjoyed it. No worries, pleasure. And um, yeah, like enjoy the rest of your uh, yeah kind of week. It's uh, yeah. Yeah, so it's Tuesday here in the UK uh, after a long bank holiday weekend. So, um, yeah, uh, a lot of journalists have been away on holiday as well. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see as they as they come back online, um, yeah, kind of what they get up to over the next few weeks and days. So, um, yeah, kind of thank you very much again, Elena, and um, yeah, hopefully speak again. Yes, thank you so much. Cheers, Elena. Take care. Bye. Bye.